My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You're the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 45, which is the psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, December the 14th, 2021. If you've happened to notice, by the way, this is Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. If, if you've happened to notice for about two weeks here, I've gotten the wrong date every single day. I do these in advance, and I somehow messed up the dates a while back, and so now I've finally got these things back right. Sorry about that misinformation and any confusion it might have caused you in your daily life to hear me say the wrong day. So anyway, today we're, we're continuing in, in the same books. We're still in the prophecy of Zechariah this today, verse uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. We're in the book of the Revelation, and I said yesterday the last letter was to Philadelphia, and that's wrong because today we're going to pick up a new um, letter, which is the church in Laodicea, which is uh, Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22, and then in Matthew's gospel, continuing the theme of judgment in chapter 24, verses 32 to 44. So <coughs> the the Zechariah prophecy, remember yesterday he said that a measuring line would be stretched over Jerusalem. Uh, there's, there's always a measuring line stretched over Jerusalem to tell us how large it is, how expansive it is, and how much it's grown. <laughs> there's no reason to measure the thing if it's the same measurement all the time. So we see this measurement in Ezekiel. We see it here in Zechariah. We see it then again in the book of the Revelation. We talked about that measuring line a couple of weeks ago, about huge, huge dimensions of the city. So here, what Zechariah says, I lifted my eyes. Remember yesterday he had been, he had seen the, the rider on the red horse and the other horses there that were patrolling the earth. He had seen a vision of them in the, in the glen among the myrtle trees. And now he says, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length And in the book of Revelation, we get not only the length and the width, we also get the height of the city. And and it's it's a perfect cube, but it's enormous. (laughs) From uh, Canada all the way down through the Appalachians on that, so carve out part of the East Coast, let's say, and go all the way down to Mexico and then all the way to the ocean. And it's equally high. So here, though, what we get is he's going to measure Jerusalem. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So remember at the end of the book of Jonah, what What he talks about, God says to Jonah, would you really have me go down there and destroy that city, which is a great city, and it has X number of people in it, and also much cattle. Here we see that same thing. It's 
that it's going to be so huge and inhabited by a multitude of people and livestock. And it's going to be so huge that walls won't make any difference to this. And so he says, I'll be the wall around Jerusalem. It won't need a wall. I'll be the wall. And I'll be their glory in the midst of Jerusalem. Now, the wall is a defensive structure, right? It keeps the people inside safe. It also keeps the world out, and so, except for who you allow to come in. So walls serve a good purpose. But there won't be a need for a wall in the coming of the kingdom because those won't be there. But, but there are walls in the New Jerusalem. But God says, literally, I will be the wall. I will be a wall of fire all around her. I'll be the protection my people need. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. Come from Babylon, for I've spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. What a beautiful thing. God says, I sent you among the nations. You're there in exile because of me, but but you're the apple of my eye. You are still my people. I have not rejected you. I have not forsaken you. My covenant with you is forever. Behold, I'll shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who served them. So they're going to plunder the people of Babylon just as the way that they had plundered the people of Egypt when they left. Then you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So he's preparing to act and come and draw his people to himself and take them back to Jerusalem where he will dwell in their midst. So it's judgment on the nations who have plundered his people, but it's blessing for his people because he will be in their midst and he will be the hedge of fire of protection around the city itself. In the gospel lesson, Jesus continuing that theme of judgment when they asked um, what will be the signs that the uh, temple is going to fall. So here he says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So it's pretty easy to see the, the signs. You know how to interpret the signs of the seasons. So also when you see all these things, the things that he has just told, you shall know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So they're going to see some of the signs. They're going to see the abomination of desolation set up in the holy place, and they're going to see the persecution that comes along with the desecration and ultimately the destruction of the temple. And so he says, you're going to see all these things, but just keep your eyes open and pay attention. You're going to recognize these things. You'll be like the men of Issachar were described in Second Chronicles, those men who knew the times and knew what Israel should do. He says, be like those people. Live by the power of the Holy Spirit. I will reveal these things to you, and you'll make good choices, and you'll see the truth behind all things. He said, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 
And so in the incarnation, Jesus didn't know the time, only the Father who kept his own counsel in the matter, as opposed to the way that he did creation, which is in sort of participation with the angels, and let us make man in our own image. So here, though, he says the Father keeps his own counsel on this thing. And one of the things that you can see in this is not that the angels of heaven know goes back to that whole thing about the Nephilim and in, in, in the first part of Genesis 6, that the angels knew things that humans didn't, and they taught those things to, to their wives among men that they took, of the daughters of men, and their children. And he says there's some things that God doesn't reveal to them, though, is what we're being told here. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so Jesus says, just stay about the work. He's telling us, be like Noah. You know, Noah wasn't told when the flood was going to be. He was just told to be prepared for it. And so his work was to be prepared and to gather all the animals and all that. He's basically saying here, you be like Noah, because he, did, he wasn't told in advance when this was going to start. Even when he went into the ark, he had to wait several days before the rains came. So here he says, you know, don't worry about all this. You're not going to know in advance. You can see the signs. You can see all that stuff. But the specifics are not going to be revealed then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, always, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." He said, this is really simple. Just be about the work that you've been given to do. Do exactly what Noah did. Noah kept himself busy about the work that he'd been given to do in building the ark and collecting the animals. You do the same. I'm telling you, judgment's coming. Do you believe me or not? And if you believe me, then you need to be prepared. You need to be awake. You need to constantly be about the work that you've been given to do, to be truly prepared, to truly rejoice at the coming of Christ. Because the, ultimately the point is, is, is that, that our goal should be to preach the gospel at all times. That nobody that we know should be outside. Nobody should be left behind. But what we're told is some will. Uh, there, there's, he's not saying, I'm going to save everybody. Obviously that's not true. Two will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two will be grinding. One will be taken, one will be left. It's as simple as that. And so we need to be prepared personally, but we also need to have a burden in our hearts for those who don't know the Lord and don't know the truth. In the book of the Revelation, now we get to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So this is, there's so many, every single letter has sort of a different way of saying who Jesus is. And you've got to believe that at some level what they need is, is, is those must have meaning to those particular churches to whom they're addressed. And so the words of the Amen, let it be so, that's what it means, let it be so. So whatever you say, let it be so. That, that's what that means, the Amen, the one who speaks after. 
So the the word of God confirming the word that was spoken previously by the Father, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He said, I know your works. That's good, right? Nope. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So behold, you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. I'll spew you out of my mouth. That's an interesting thing. I can remember early on when we came here in, in Asheville, we had some people who who were certain kinds of worshipers, right? I mean, they were passionate worshipers. So they, they sang with their hands in the air. They did things like, you know, they, they truly worshipped the living God. And so they wanted more and more of him. And, and there was um, a guy who was part of the, the beginning part of the church who asked me to go to a football game with him. Well, one of the things he didn't like was that sort of display of enthusiasm. It made him really uncomfortable to see people do that and to, to, for those people then to, to praise God truly. Um, so we went to a football game, and I watched this guy get really, really fired up when the home team came out onto the field. And I'm looking at him in just wonder, thinking, you know, so this is an inappropriate reaction to the coming of the Lord and the proclamation of his word and the praises of his people. But, but it's okay to show that kind of enthusiasm and excitement in a, in a football stadium. Well, I, I, I get it. Okay, whatever. Um, but that, that's the reality is, is that, that this lukewarm thing that, that, that's not passionate about him and passionate about his mission in the same way Jesus was passionate about the mission of God. We should be passionate worshipers. He says, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, naked, and blind. He says, you see from an earthly perspective, and you think you're good to go, and you think everything's wonderful in your world, but I'm telling you, from my perspective, you're pathetic. You're not seeing things the right way. You see things not like the men of Issachar. You're not interpreting the times at all. You you think because you're prosperous, you have my blessing, and that somehow I'm with you. because And your evidence of that is nothing more than your own prosperity. He said, no, that's blinding you to the reality of who you are before me. You're taking your comfort and your joy in all those things of the earth. Therefore, you're lukewarm about me. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. In other words, he's declaring his love for them and the proof of his love is actually not the material blessing and the prosperity, it's reproof and discipline. So he says, be zealous. In other words, stop being lukewarm. Be zealous and repent. Repent of your sin of lukewarmness. Repent of your sin of taking all your comfort and your pleasure in the things of the world. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit on my throne. And as I also conquered and sat down with my father on the throne. And so he's inviting them to rest. 
right? To the one who conquers, the one who perseveres, the one who who has eyes for and a heart for the kingdom of God above all else. He says that one will sit down after his conquest in the same way I conquered and sat down at the throne of the Father. And how did Jesus conquer? It was, well, by his death and resurrection. And we'll conquer in the same way. We'll conquer by persevering in faith and zeal towards him. And then at that time, we'll be invited to come to the throne and to sit with Jesus on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.